Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, this is Toby Mathis. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. Jeff, Hello. welcome. Yeah, thank I, you. I didn't do it right. This is Tax Tuesday. My name's Toby. I'm Jeff Webb. Yeah, see, that's better. Take three. Well, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, hey, we're going to be going over a whole bunch of fun stuff today. Uh, lots of tax. Well, that's going on in the world right now, obviously, but uh, there's some tax issues coming up. I had somebody ask me, like, what about this corporate minimum tax? It's only for corporations that are booking income of over a billion dollars. When I mean booking, it means that it's kind of like an AMT, which means it doesn't matter what your deductions are, we're going to tax you on it. So if you make a billion dollars, you got to worry about it. <laughs> no. All right, what do we got? Uh, yeah, you could ask your questions. Uh, some people are already doing it. You can go into the chat. You can say, hey, hey, Sherry, I see you there. And uh, folks from Raleigh, oh, a billion. Yeah, so let me know where you're from. We'll, we'll call out your city and state if I can see it fast enough. Sometimes they fly through. Cancun, oh my gosh. Albion, Claremont, San Diego, Corona, California, Mooresville, North Carolina, Indio, California, Los Angeles, Northern Virginia, Greensboro. Oh my God, now they're going too, too fast. My, Miami, Montana, Morgan Hill, New Jersey, Rio Verde, Pennsylvania, Florida, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, and at this point, they're just going through too fast. There's El Paso, Huntington Beach, Dallas, California, the communist state of Washington State, Cheryl, not all communists are Washington, Tampa, Lakeland, Arizona, Santa Clara, Lawrenceville, Georgia, Boca Raton, Dublin, California. We've got people from all over the place. We would have Hawaii in the house. Aloha, Chicago. And, oh, the pro surf is going on there right now. Where? Must be. Uh, Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach. Nice. Medford, Oregon. So that was Patty. Of course, we have a whole bunch of people on to serve you, including Patty, Troy, Matthew, Dutch, Elliot, probably more. I'm horrible. I can't see them all. Hey, wait, now I might be able to see them all. Ian, Pio, Christos, Elliot, Dutch. Oh my gosh. We got a lot of people on to help you. So if you have questions, you can go into the Q&A and you can post a question. If you have comments, put it in the chat. And a comment is, oh my God, what was that? Or if I ask a question and say, hey guys, what do you think of this? What do you think the answer is? Then go into chat. Otherwise, use the Q&A if you have questions for the accountants and the attorneys. They'll do their very best to get through. If you have really specific things to you, we will invite you to become a platinum client. It's a whopping $35 a month, and you can ask your questions away. People say, why do you do that? You should be charging 400 bucks an hour like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Sure, that stinks. You know, we don't want to do that to you. I didn't like it when people did it to me, so we're not going to do it to you. There we go. We use the golden rule. What else we got? You can always ask questions during the week. You go to Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We get about 500 a week. It is pretty insane. And you can go through there. And then we pick the questions to go over out of those questions. So, and my picking process is here's 10 of them. Slap them up. Just make sure nothing in there is too crazy. All right. So here we go. What are the tax implications of selling stock? And by the way, 
I'm going to read through the questions first, then we will go through them. Jeff just wants to answer them all. I'll be like, Jeff, wait, oh, wait. So we'll go through and tell you what we're going to answer, and then we'll go through and answer. And if you have comments on it, by all means, you can do it. All right. What are the tax implications of selling stock and using the proceeds to invest in real estate? We'll answer that. Good question. I formed a business in Wyoming for anonymity. I look forward to flipping houses after I save enough from wholesaling. I have yet to get an EIN because I'm not sure how I should be taxed. Please advise for a beginner university student. Thank you. And I'm grateful for all your videos. We'll go through that. We are partnering with a friend to run an Airbnb business. We will buy the property and our friend will manage the Airbnb business. Sure, they will. I'm just teasing. Does, the, does this qualify us as professional investors? Professional something. We'll get to it. What's the best way to avoid taxes when getting income from Forex trading? Forex trading. Can I get hard money loan, a hard money loan with no collateral? I bought a real estate course in April of 2022. And then I started my LLC in May of 2022. Can I write off the cost of the course as a business expense on my taxes? We'll go into that one too. The answers you will see are never quite as straightforward as you wish. Correct. Yep. So we, that, that's another great example. So we'll get into it. My investment style is to strictly invest in dividend, dividend yielding stocks with the exception of a few growth stocks. Good for you. That's actually the smart move. I bet you you're laughing at everybody right now. Uh, I always roll the dividends back into the generating stock. I never sell anything. In other words, they're doing a dividend reinvestment plan or they're just buying more shares directly out of it. So my question is this, must I pay taxes on the dividends? Jeff, we will have to answer that one. That's the question of the day. Must I pay taxes? Mm, Maybe, right? Okay, a syndication investment was sold in December because the schedule K-1 wasn't marked final some capital was held back. My CPA says passive losses can't be used to offset the capital gains. Is he correct? So we'll answer that one. I have heard you speak about revocable trusts. Can you tell us the difference between revocable trust and an irrevocable complex trust? I know you have said that with an irrevocable, you don't own anything, but wouldn't you want that so you can't get sued? Yeah, we'll go over through that too. And I have a nonprofit mentoring business that I often fund with my personal finances. Is there any way that I can write this money off on my taxes? Yeah, we'll go through all these really good questions today. Jeff, what do you think so far? I think they're good questions, yeah. I think they're, yep, I think we're going to have some fun today. You ready? We're going to dive in. But before we do, please go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. In fact, do more than just subscribe. Go and subscribe. Look at that. Flashing red, flashing red. Go and subscribe and click the little bell. And that way, when we put out videos, you can see it. Don't just go to mine. Go to my partner, Clint's. He's really smart, and he does more of the asset protection side. I tend to stick around the tax and even some finances. But uh, if you go there, we'll love you. And and you'll see, by the way, if you watch some of the videos. Nowadays, I'm going to give you guys a a new one. You'll see pictures of my cats. I'm going to start giving away pictures of Peaches and Clint. All right. Uh, there's the YouTube channel. There we go. Hey, Toby. Hey, nice to see you. Uh, and you can also live stream this event. Every other week, we do the Tax Tuesday on the YouTube site as well as a live stream. We go in there and spend some time, about two or three videos a week. And you'll see we even have some short ones. 
most of them in the 20 to 30 minute range. Some of them get a little longer, like the Tax Tuesdays, but the regular videos, usually 30 minutes, 30 minutes or less, and they're pretty jam-packed. You ready? Let's go. What are the tax implications of selling stock and using the proceeds to invest in real estate? Jeff? That depends. If, if I sell some stock and then go out and buy some real estate, one actually has nothing to do with the other, except in one circumstance that I can think of is if you buy real estate in a qualified opportunity zone. Mm-hmm. So if I have any, if I sell my stock and I have a gain on it and take those proceeds and buy uh, real estate in a qualified opportunity zone, I can defer my gains for a time. Yeah. So you look at it, you're, you're looking at the sale of stock being a capital asset investing into another capital asset. Mm -hmm. So we don't really care whether you're selling stock and buying more stock or selling stock and buying real estate or selling stock and buying crypto. Those are all capital assets or taxed as capital assets. Crypto, we don't know what the heck it is, right? We'll call that a currency, but it's taxed as a capital asset. So you sell your stock. It's either going to be short-term or long-term gain because it's Mm -hmm. capital. And you pay your tax consequences. Jeff is 100% correct. The only way to defer capital gains right now is if it's real estate, you could do a 1031 exchange. If it's stocks, you can do a qualified opportunity zone. And it's only going to be deferred for a couple of years. Like I think it's going to be recognized 1231-2025. So it'll be recognized in 2026. And that's, yay. You could hold off some of it, but then you have to jump through the qualified opportunities on hoops. Maybe it's a good deal. Maybe you have some qualified opportunities on opportunities. You sell your stock. Could we offset some of that selling of the stock? Let's say the stock was at a loss and you have some real estate that's a gain. Could you sell the real estate not and use the loss? Yeah, you could sell the real estate um, or actually any other kind of asset that you could get a capital gain from to offset that loss. Vice versa, if you had for selling stock at a gain and you have some loss leaders out there as some of us do uh, from from the market. Uh, you, you could sell that. Uh, I don't think you're going to want to sell real estate at a loss right now, but there there may be other losses that you can hang on to your real there. estate, your stocks, hang on to your stocks. Frankly, you shouldn't be selling anything at this point. Nobody times the market. Keep buying. But beyond that, if you have some crypto at a loss, you could sell it and buy it back and offset mm-hmm. the sale of your stock. So like, this is weird. If I sell stock, you have something called the wash sale loss rule that restricts us from being able to buy it back within 30 days, 30 days of the sell before or after. So it's like a 60 day stretch. But regardless, I, I, I can't buy it back. I can't create a loss. That does not exist with real estate or with crypto. So if I sell stock and I want to invest it into real estate, and I'm sitting on some Bitcoin that's gone down a little bit, it might be wise to say, you know what, I'm going to offset that. So I, I bought Bitcoin at 69000 <laughs> It's now trading at 23 maybe a third of what I bought it for. But I know it's going to come back, Toby. I could, I could sell it, take that loss, offset my selling of stocks, and buy the crypto right back. And be right back in the position I already was in. You got it. Yeah, you have your transaction costs, depending on where you did, you could avoid it or you could do it. Uh, when do you do the 1031 exchange in order to avoid taxes against real estate capital gains? Anytime you sell, CC, as long as it's an investment property, even if you held it for six months, you can, as long as you 
follow the rules of the 1031, you could exchange real estate and buy more real estate. So I could sell a piece of property and buy 10 pieces of property. I could buy one piece of property. I could buy land. I could buy a mobile home park. I could buy a condo. I could buy a single family. As long as it's real estate, I can swap it as long as it's a equal or greater value. So uh, do I do it prior to selling the property? No, you would actually, you have to have a 1031 exchange qualified intermediary when you sell to make sure that you do not receive the funds or you do a reverse exchange where you do the same thing. You buy a property with a qualified intermediary, then you sell the previous property. That's called a reverse exchange. You could do that too. If you have questions on that CC, either reach out to us or grab a, uh, a 1031 exchange facilitator because, yeah, you can avoid millions and millions of dollars of taxes by doing the 1031 exchange, right? Hopefully, we beat this uh, tax implications of selling stock and using the proceeds to invest in real estate to death. Uh, I'm going to do one more, which is, hey, I buy real estate and depreciate the heck out of it. Can I use that to offset my uh, stock sale? Well, yeah, you can because losses of other type of income can offset capital gains. It's just that capital losses can offset a lot of different things. Real estate losses? Well, that's assuming that you do qualify to take those deductions, those cost segregations and depreciation. If I cost seg real estate and and it's passive, I cannot use it against my capital gains. Correct. Unless I'm an active participant or real estate professional or that real estate doesn't qualify as rental real estate. It's an Airbnb or VRBO, which case then it's just ordinary loss. As long as I materially participate, then I could actually use it to offset my capital gains. But I never would because capital gains, depending on if it's long-term, I would never want to use ordinary losses against it just because it's taxed at a maximum of 20% anyway, the capital gains, long-term capital gains. But if it's short-term, I would use it for sure. Yep. Anyway, you see how there's like some little pieces to this? I wish it was just straightforward, but actually, I don't know if I do. I don't think we would be sitting here if it was straightforward. I think I'd be probably digging ditches somewhere. I don't know what I'd be doing. Buying more real estate. All right. I formed a business in Wyoming for anonymity. I look forward to flipping houses after I save enough from wholesaling. I'm going to give you the eyeball, right? I have yet to get an EIM because I'm not sure how I should be taxed. Please advise for a beginner university student. Thank you. And I'm grateful for all your videos. Jeff Rowe. Corporation. That's all I got. Yeah. If you are flipping or doing any activity, what type of corporation would you recommend for a young person? What type of corporation? Are you talking LLC versus Inc? S versus C. Oh, definitely C. Definitely C, start off. Yeah, if, if I'm doing uh, wholesaling and uh, possibly flipping, uh, I, I'm going to do a C corporation. Yeah. So for those of you guys who don't know what flipping is or what wholesaling is, flipping is I buy a house to sell it, and it's not, it's not going to be considered a capital asset. It's going to be considered inventory. No different than if I had a grocery store and I bought Cheerios and stocked the shelf. Or if I had a car lot and I had lots of Corvettes and I sold Corvettes, I don't get to write it off until I sell it and it's a cost of goods sold, but it's ordinary income and it's subject to self-employment tax. Mm -hmm. Wholesaling is I put uh, properties under contract and I sign them or I sell them to somebody else, or I buy a house really quickly and immediately sell it, which case I'm like a dealer again, or I'm like a, a flipper. In any of those, it's no different than making pizzas. 
it's active ordinary income. Now, Jeffro is going to a C-Corp more than likely because we know we can zero it out. Like we'll have lots of expenses. All of your, this guy, this little cell phone here, 100%. I have a corporation. I don't have to figure out what portion is personal versus business. If the business gets a benefit from it, writes it off 100%. This computer writes it off 100%. You're a college student. I'm sure you have lots of things that you're having to incur that you can reimburse. If it starts making too much money, now we might want to consider making an S election if you're going to use that cash and you're going to live off of it. But otherwise, you still get a benefit. Some people uh, don't realize this. You can get a benefit even with the C-Corp if you're paying it out all in salary. There's still some benefits there because of the way the employment taxes work but versus a sole proprietor. Sole proprietor in my book is like the wrong entity to be, yep. the wrong thing to be just because your audit rate is, as of today, about uh, 400 to 1,600% higher than its corporation counterpart. <laughs> and you lose those audits uh, average 95% of the time if you're a sole proprietor. So I don't want to invite that into my tent. I would prefer to just not be molested. And I can write off so much stuff with my C-Corp that I'm not too worried about it. And even if you make a bunch of money in a C-Corp, here's a hint. If I don't want to pay it to myself, I might start loaning it on projects. So when you do your first flip, you could actually do it through that C-Corp. Yeah, I might set up a separate LLC just for that particular flip, depending on the value of it. Mm-hmm. But from a tax standpoint, that C-Corp is now your friend and it's going to be protecting you liability and giving you a lot of tax benefits. So I, I agree with you about setting, the, setting up an LLC for each flip. What about the wholesaling? Mm. Wholesaling, I'm not too worried about. I would do that probably through the parent. If I'm doing a lot of wholesaling and I'm concerned if I'm actually taking title mm. and I'm going to do a double close, I might use a separate entity for that. Just if I'm worried about getting sued 10 years from now for something I'm doing, then I might do it. But I, yeah, I've, I've only seen that happen once and it was a chain of title up in uh, Seattle of all places where they were about the 10th owner back and they got sued. And, you know, again, you, as long as you have good insurance, you'll be able to take that out. And by good insurance, I mean, if you're wholesaling, you're probably not carrying much, but make sure you have personal insurance and make sure that you have an umbrella policy to cover you in the event that you don't have uh, your, your regular homeowners or renters policy doesn't cover you. But I'm not too worried. You don't have anything to take away, honestly, you know, when you're getting started. I'm not too worried about lawsuits. A lawsuit nowadays, four years, 20, uh, 250000 probably to take it to trial, and uh, you can make them suffer. So most people don't. Usually with a lawsuit, it's more the nuisance value and the emotional toll and taking time out of your day to have to deal with it. But uh, as long as we're isolating our target, so their their win, just so you know, let's say that it's somebody and like you're wholesaling, you're doing your thing, you're even flipping and you're like, Toby, but there's a whole bunch of value in this thing. That thing gets lightning sued. It's not overnight. You're going to keep operating your business. You're going to pay yourself a salary. And guess what you're going to quit doing? You're going to quit buying any more deals in that particular entity. And it's going to be drained of cash on its own. And there's going to be nothing for them to take. So all we're trying to do is keep it off of you so that they can't follow you around the rest of your life. All right. Fun one. All right. Here's an interesting one. We are partnering with a friend to run an Airbnb. So I should say current friend (laughs) to run an Airbnb business. No, we will buy the property and our friend will manage the Airbnb business. Does this qualify us as professional investors, Jeff? Actually, it does the opposite from my point of view. 
if you are not managing that Airbnb business yourself, your partner is actually going to have more material participation than you do. The only way to defeat that is if you both have more than 500 hours of time. And I don't know how you do that if you're not managing that Airbnb business. Yeah. So you buy a property. I'm like, so you're buying the property and they're going to manage it. So you're the owner. Like, this is where I get always get confused. Why would you give somebody a piece of your property if you're the one buying it? So let's just say, all right, I set up, we throw everything into an LLC. We're partners. I have a lot more basis. I have this, this real estate and I'm going to depreciate it. You would be what's called a passive investor in that enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's no different than if, again, Jeff and I, I love the pizza shop. Jeff works the pizza shop. I just put the money in. I bought the oven. I'm passive. He's active. I still can't take that deduction against my ordinary W-2 income or things like that. Like It's not going to it's not gonna help me. In, no, it does not qualify as a professional investor. Professional real estate status is on rental properties only, Airbnb. If it's a typical Airbnb property, it's four days or less on average. They're about three days is their average right now. That is not a rental activity, according to the IRS. That is a regular business, just like I'm a, uh, running a pizza shop. Your friends, if they're managing it, they would be the material participant. They would get the deduction uh, that would flow through under their return and offset their W-2. You would not. If, let's do another one. If you were able to qualify as a real estate professional because of all your other rental activities, and it's hard to qualify, but let's say one spouse did nothing but real estate or was in construction or was a real estate agent or did flips or whatever, wholesale, and they qualified for 750 hours, it's what they did the most of their time, and then you both combined materially participated in your real estate, what I would be doing is taking that property, putting it in its own LLC, you own it 100%. And then I might lease it to the Airbnb that you own with your friend. That's more than likely what I'd be doing under these circumstances. I may even do that regardless, like say, hey, even if somehow you were going to qualify as a a material participant and able to take the the write-off, I would probably side with the, let's keep the real estate separate from this. There's no reason to do it. Like you guys could split up the income all you want, but I want to make sure that that house always remains your house. I wanted to go back to the whole we partnering with a friend thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like when I say when we say partnering, we're not talking a partnership. Either I own the business and I'm either hiring him as an employee or a 1099 contractor, or we set him up in his own property management business and have him be a third party and not actually own a piece of that. Yeah, that's that's what I was just thinking. Yeah. I, would, I would have the, the the real estate separate. I might lease it. I might set up a corporation if I wanted to do it together. When I say do it together, I mean in the, uh, the Airbnb business, not the, not the rental. Hey, I own the rental. I'll put it in here. And I could even agree, like Jeff and I, let's say that I owned a property. I set up a business and I lease this to that business. And I say, Jeff, only pay lease. The lease is capped at 50% of what we net. We could do something like mm-hmm. that, right? And then I could pay it, great. And then I could agree to... Jeff gets a guaranteed payment, or if it's an S-corp, you get the salary because you're the only one working. Right. Everything else comes to me as a lease payment, and I can offset it with depreciation. So how much tax would I be paying on that? 
zero, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I could I could do it that way, and that way also Jeff isn't eating up my uh, uh, my depreciation. I'd be very mad at that. Somebody says, "Can I use my personal residence as an Airbnb, and will it qualify as a short term rental?" And its benefits to offset my W two earnings. You can. And let me just give you a couple of rules, unless you want to go over them. No, go ahead. So if it's 14 days or less, you don't have to recognize the income. I wouldn't even depreciate it under those circumstances. Or no. would you? Yeah. If if it's over 14 days, then I'm going to take that portion of the home and I'm going to depreciate that portion. So if it's the house and it's 25% of the square footage, then I would depreciate 25% of the improvement value would be depreciated. I could accelerate it. And if I am the one managing that rental, yes, I could offset my W-2 with that depreciation. I don't know how much it would be. It depends on your your your, your situation. But yeah, people house hack is what we call that. And they do it all the time. And some people just do it for 14 days because they don't have to pay tax on it. And then they don't depreciate. And they don't have to worry about any issues when they sell the property. You might have a, a some recapture when you sell it under those circumstances if, you, if you're depreciating it. But you could actually 1031 exchange that. You could actually 1031 exchange just that portion of the home. So you could still use your 121 exclusion. Weird stuff. All right. I think we've beaten that one to death, too. Unless you have anything else. No. All right. Well, the horse is dead. Poor horse. What's the best way to avoid taxes when getting income from Forex trading? IRS is actually very hard on Forex traders. I don't know why they've become a, such a focal point. There's one tool called the um, 988 election. Mm-hmm. The 988 election, all right, let me go back. When, when you do Forex trading, it's subject to the uh, 1256 rules, which says basically is no matter when I bought and sold it, if 60% gets treated as long-term, 40% as short-term. Mm-hmm. I got those right. Yep. Okay. The 988 election allows you to change those capital gains into ordinary gains. Mm-hmm. So why would I want to do that? Does doesn't really make sense. Well, it makes sense if you're not very good at this forex trading and, you want to and, you, and you're losing money. Yeah, usually you don't see deductions against forex, I and mean, you can create it with right. you know the way that you create it. Typically, is to have a structure for the forex trading managed and partially owned by another corporation. So you might have a partnership owning that forex account, 80, 20 percent to a corp. The twenty percent goes to the corp automatically. And the corp would use that money to 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 fund all the expenses. Mm-hmm. And Jeff's absolutely right. You'd have the twelve fifty six, the sixty forty split on anything that's futures looking. I think right. it is what it's going to boil down to. I don't think it's on all, and I think it defaults. I thought the default was the nine eighty eight on forex futures contracts are default twelve fifty six, right? Yes, and so I can't. Remember. I wasn't sure about that. Which way it defaulted? I, can, uh, I, can, I do I can, know that it. You can revoke that election, but you got to do a private letter ruling. I think you can do it per transaction. I think you can actually state, unless you're going to treat it all as one. So mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, don't quote me on it, but I believe that it's it, it's 988, I think is the exception. Oh no, you said it was the exception to the rule. I think it's the rule and the exception is the 1256. If you're designating a futures, something that could happen in the future, then I could treat it as a 1256. Otherwise, they want to work it. Uh, currency trading is going to be ordinary income. Okay. I, think, I think it's always ordinary income. The only one that's not is futures for sure. And usually that's commodities. And then if you're doing uh, future looking Forex contracts, then you can elect to treat it as 1256, I think. 
but it gets it gets muddy no matter what. So here's the here's the rule. If you're doing forex trading, make sure you have an accountant looking at it and, and then by all means, if you're not profitable at it, which is about 80% of forex traders, is that fair? It's hard to beat the computers. It is really hard to beat the computers. It's tough. And anybody that's that's actively short-term trading, I know there's a, those of you guys who make money at it, but I'm just saying that in our experience, and the studies have shown this too, you have about a 4% success rate. It's hard to time the markets. I'm going to get some hate mail. A bunch of people are probably going to leave. You just told me I'll never make money. No, I'm just saying that you better be really good at it. You better have really good mentors. You better have people that are watching you while you're doing it. Trade as a group and, and be smart about it. If you're gambling, you'll lose eventually. And it's always big. Can I get hard money loan with no collateral? Maybe. We get them all the time, actually. This is going to depend solely upon the lender. So hard money loan is money from a private lender, not from a bank. And if they want collateral, they're going to ask for collateral. Yeah. You know what? This is where it gets really funny. Whenever you have uh, lending, remember the three C's, cash, collateral, or credibility. So if you have cash, you can always take a loan out against the cash. I think I may have talked about this last time where I used to buy a CD. Anytime I'd open up a business, I'd buy a CD at that institution. I'd use it as collateral to get a line of credit. And then eventually they wouldn't need the CD as collateral. And I would just, and now I just have a business that has an open line of credit. And then over years it would expand. So even now, like we have businesses that have large lines of credit. We just don't use it that often. Right. Um, So that's the cash collateral is like, if I'm doing a car loan, house loan, something where there's something that they could take. So the home loans, the obvious one, Hey, I'll loan you money, but I'm going to take a mortgage out (laughs) against your property. And then you have the credibility where it's just your credit score, you know, and we've all been young people and young people have no credibility. So even when they do a collateral loan, they may say, you know, like on a car, they they may still say, we want somebody else to co-sign. So when you're doing a hard money loan with no collateral, what you're really doing is doing a personal loan. And yes, there's lots of people that'll give you a personal loan. Uh, There's credit cards that'll give you cash advances. There's people that'll give you a line of credit just off your signature. That's all it is. Hard money usually says non-traditional lender, uh, maybe non-bank, but you could get a loan without collateral. Speaking of collateral, you can also get loans with collateral. And I was just talking, uh, not talking, but I was emailing back and forth uh, somebody at Morgan Stanley, and they still have loans below 2% on their security back lines of credit. Again, the collateral is the stock. They will loan you now because they, what do you think is going to happen to the stock market? They're looking at it going, this is the worst start of the S&P since 1970. There's one direction it's probably going to go. Inflation's going nuts, which is a driver to growth. Even if we went in a recession, they're probably saying, hey, you know what? You're probably going to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. They'll give you a security back line of credit, usually up to 70% at really low amounts of money, even though mar- mortgages are up. So everybody goes, mortgages are five and a half percent. But yeah, there's, there's still two and 3% loans out there. But the Fed just raised their rates by three-quarter of a percent. Mm-hmm. Since then, mortgage rates have dropped. Because they're not tied to each other. The, well, I know they're not, but it just it still doesn't make sense. Here's a question. Here's a question. What are the mortgage rates tied to? What do they follow? Anybody out there know on, on chat? What are the mortgage rates tied to? Is it the Fed or is it something else? Let's see. Bonds. Somebody says bond. It's the 10-year treasury. And we inverted. 
In other words, they'll give you more money for that for the bond for a shorter period of time than they'll give you for the long period, which tells you like, ah. So yeah, 10-year treasury. So what's going on is the 10-year treasury has been going down. Yeah. The short-term treasury has been going up. That's called inversion, which they always go, recession. So the the 10 and 2, so the 10-year treasury has gone below the two-year treasury. The 10-year treasury is slightly below the three-month treasury. It's like within a few, I forget what it is, but it's really close, like a fraction of a percent. And then they'll start screaming, we're in a recession again. Actually, they're already screaming we're in a recession. Right. I, I just tried not to listen to them. I go, da, 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 da. But the treasury, so the, the 10-year treasury has been down, which is, again, why has the mortgage interest rate been shooting up? The 10-year treasury has been kind of doing it, been in the garbage all year. Like this is the first year, I think, where we had the first six months where bonds were down and stocks were down. Usually it's one or the other, but it's a, it's a funky time if you like those types of things. If you have an economist... You just walk up to them and go, did it invert? And then they'll be like, yes. And you go, oh, the 10 and three inverted? And then they'll go, no, 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 the 10 and two. The 10 and two. All right. I, <laughs> I bought a real estate course in April of 2022 and then started my LLC in May of 2022. Can I write off the cost of the course as a business expense on my taxes? That depends. Mm. It's going to depend primarily on how your LLC is being taxed. If it's being taxed as a corporation, a C corporation, you can use those real estate costs, have your C corp reimburse you for them, uh, and they would be startup costs to your C corporations. Is there a cap on that? There is not a cap exactly. It's kind of capped on how much you can deduct in the first year. So if I paid $5,000 for my course, I'm going to be able to deduct all that in the first year. Hmm. Yeah, so that's a startup expense. Yep. So that's, op- expense. that's option number one. What's option number two? You could deduct it as the real estate course is being used. That is, if I paid for it in April 2022, but I'm actually not doing anything. What, what if you're already a real estate investor? Oh, if you're already a real estate investor, I, I assume not in this case. But uh, if you're already a real estate investor, then, or a real estate agent, even anything. Yeah, um, I could write it off as if I'm if, a, if this meets. If this meets your needs for your current occupation, then yeah, you could write it off immediately. I would think you could still write it off even if I'm an investor because we had the Woodward case. That was actually a guy that went to one of our events and he didn't bother to listen to us, listened to his accountant and got tased and ended up being a tax case. So not that we took glee in that, but it was kind of weird because we had our notes on it. Always cover your good tush, right? And uh, it was kind of funny. But the guy was had not purchased any properties yet. And took a course and his accountant told him you could write it off. Hey, if you haven't, you're not in business yet. The reason that Jeff is saying use the corp is because by setting up a corp, it's in business. There's only one reason you're setting up a for-profit corporation. Whereas you and I, we had, they, they look at our, what are you doing? You know, do you have rent rental or do you have real estate? Yes. And so if you're a flipper, you could definitely write it off if, if you're already engaged in it, in your individual name or in an LLC. If you're an investor, you might have a little harder road to hoe because it may not be considered an ordinary necessary expense that you can use. If it's a C or an S corp, then we don't have to worry or an LLC taxes a C or an S, then we can definitely write it off. Worst case scenario, we're writing it off over time. Best case scenario, you already have revenue coming in there and it's literally just reimbursing you for that education. 
One thing I don't like about putting it on Schedule C, and it may be a legitimate expense. I've been flipping for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But if I have this giant education expense and I'm putting on my Schedule C, it may be legitimate, but it may be waving a flag to IRS to come look at me. Mm-hmm. Did I mention that sole proprietors lose their audits 95% of the time? I've heard that. Yeah, they get they get absolutely rooked. So yeah, you don't want to you don't want to be a sole proprietor, especially if you're on the audit. They uh, you just don't do well. <laughs> it's not your stats are not in your favor. Speaking of being in your favor, if you want to put some stats in your favor, come to a tax and asset protection event. They're absolutely free. Do them about twice a month. They're always a little bit different, but we have one coming up on August thirteenth. You can certainly register again. It's well worth your time. Has anybody been to the Tax and Asset Protection event? And what would you tell somebody who is thinking of it? Let's see. Somebody says they figure sole proprietors are less sophisticated and won't fight back. Actually, yeah, a little bit. They, you know who they love to audit? They love to audit the people making the earn, taking the earned income tax credit. Benny says, I've been a couple of times. I highly recommend it. Agnes says, yes, go several times. Uh, go to the tax and asset protection now. Somebody's just really like, you will go. Uh, you always learn enough to get a headache. That's great. Tax events are incredible. So informative. Thank you. Thank you. Sign up for next session. So I won't keep reading that. That's but, why you need to go more than once because of that headache gets less and less the more you often you go. Mm-hmm. This is good. Yeah, a lot of people down there going crazy. I highly recommend the workshops. One and two was well time time well spent. Uh, I've been a couple of times and I suggest reading Clint's book. Uh, it's one day Saturday. All right, let's keep going. You guys can always come to events. We do a ton. You go to YouTube and come here. Like there's 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 Never a bad time to, to get some education. Somebody says, what do you think about buying tax liens? They're great. Absolutely great. You'll probably end up with a lot of properties depending on where you go. I was going to say, yeah. do you want to end up with the properties? Yeah. Some people buy them just because they want the interest. But uh, to me, it's like you, you, you don't really lose. Uh, it just depends on where you're at. Somebody says, uh, any plans to do an in-person event? We're talking about doing one in uh, December, talking about it. Every time I see big in-person events, I'm always thinking like it's a super spreader event. And no matter what, someone's going to walk away and say that they got sick from something. But but we'll probably start doing them again. It's fun to talk behind the camera, but it's more fun to see people and, and see what's up. Plus, you can goof off together. I think All right. I skipped one. Oh, did I skip one? All right. Yeah. All right. My investment style is to strictly invest in dividend yielding stocks, with the exception of a few growth stocks. I'm good with that. By the way, I would not be investing in growth stocks. Never been a big fan of it, but now I'm like less of a fan of it because that is gambling. I like companies that have good free cash flow and pay it to their shareholders. If I'm going to invest in something, I want to get paid. I don't want to give companies a loan, an interest-free loan. Right. I always roll the dividends back into generating stock. I never sell anything. So my question is this: must I pay taxes on the dividends, Jeff? So my investment strategy is throw lots of money at growth stocks that have never turned a profit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, I hope that someday it'll be worth something. <laughs> then when it goes up, you're like, yes, I made money. And then they take a big chunk of it. So, uh, yes. You, well, let's, let's put it this way. The dividends that you receive during the year that you're reinvesting through the DRIP dividend uh, reinvestment plan are taxable income to you. 
So I have a $100 stock. I receive a $1 dividend. I have to report that $1 dividend. But that gives me a dollar of basis in that, that dividend. Now, whether or not you're actually going to have to pay taxes on the, those dividends is going to depend on whether where you fall in the uh, income brackets. Uh, dividends are taxed as? Corporate dividends are taxed as uh, long-term capital gain. Yep. In case you didn't get that, they're going to be taxed at 0, 15, or 20%, depending on how much money you make. So if I'm a typical person, let's say that I'm an average individual, uh, according to the Census Bureau, I'm, I'm, I'm a couple and I make $92,000 a year. How much would I pay on my dividends? Uh, you'd pay 10%. Because mm. I think the cutoff's at 80 something. 87,000, but I have a standard deduction. That was a trick question. I love it. I just sucker punch Jeff all the time. He is correct. Yeah. So I take my standard deduction. I probably pay zero on it. Uh, But yeah, you're right. It's 88,000 married filing jointly. Anything below that is zero long-term capital gains rate. So if you have dividends, you might be paying zero on it. You might be thinking you're paying tax on it, but it depends on where you're at. Otherwise, between... 88,000 and 527,000-ish, mm-hmm. uh, you're paying 15%, which is, yay, you know, still great. Uh, or if you don't want to pay tax on your dividends, guess what you do? You invest through your 401k, your IRA, your Roth, or some account where it's tax deferred or tax-free in the case of a Roth. And then you just let it, but drip is actually, even though you're reinvesting it, they still make you pay tax on it, but it's preferential tax treatment. Nice thing I like about the drip too, is it's a form of, um, what do they call that? Where your average. Oh, your dollar cost average. Dollar cost average at the same time. Which by the way, there's a ton of studies on it. You're better off investing through a bear market and continuing to consistently invest than trying to time the market. Over and over and over again. In fact, if they show you that if you had timed the market perfect and invested versus if you just continually invested through bears and Mm -hmm. going up, you're actually better off just to continuously invest. So um, I know some of you guys are like, no, it's not the case. I heard from this guy who sold me option trading course. That's not the case. Yeah, it is. Here, probably the best investor on the planet is a guy named Warren Buffett, right? And the, the whole thing about Warren Buffett is he's a really great investor because he's you pretty much have a hundred percent. If you're in dividend stocks, you have about a hundred percent chance of having profit and having great success, like not, and being and completely getting all your money back out in twenty years. It's like a hundred percent versus everything else where you have a real chance of loss. So it's one of those few things where I could say with uh, about a hundred percent certainty, if you invest for twenty years and you do this. I don't care whether the market's going down 50% up. Historically, you are going to be making money, period, on your investment. Like not just your money back, but you're actually making returns. And there's nothing else that really gives us that. Oh, it's the Pelosi's. You're just mean. Lance is being mean. He's picking on our Speaker of the House and her husband, who are excellent traders. But the truth is, Lance, if you look at unusual whales, a bunch of Republicans beat them. They just don't talk about it which is like, let's just be honest. It's just freakish that they let Congress invest. In fact, up until what, what year was it? I think it was about 15 years ago that they stopped them from being able to insider trade. It used to be legal when I got into this business. It was legal for Congress to insider trade. Yep. Somebody says, you are correct. I am an unusual whales member too. They're doing great re- research over there. See, you have to be a whale. You have to be an ape and you have to be a whale. <laughs> 
If you don't know what those are, don't know how to help you. All right. Let's keep going on. Oh, by the way, if you're doing this, this is one thing. Whoever it is that wrote this, you want to add some money to your collection, start selling out of the money covered calls against that oh, uh, yeah. those stocks and you'll get an extra little bit. My, my wife holds all stocks and had about $3,000 paid dividend and $10,000 drip. I earned 200K, but she does not. Uh, should we file married, but, but separate? That's interesting. So I'm sorry. Somebody asked that in the uh, the chat. My wife holds all the stocks and had about, so they, they, she made about 3,000 in dividend and, and 10,000 in drip. And they would be at, she would be at zero. But my guess is that you're probably going to be better off filing jointly, but but you should have your accountant calculate that, Randy. Yeah. Married filing separately. No. I won't say never. Almost rarely. never. Yeah, rarely, rarely, rarely. Works out better. I sat there and said that to one person. The only reason I pause is because somebody says, I think I'm better off doing it one way. And I was like, there's no way. And then I went and calculated and I was like, yeah, actually you are. Your accountant's smart. I'm an idiot. Um, so it's the rule that you should never violate. It's the three rules, actually, of all things financial. If you guys don't know these, this is the one thing where you might want to write this down is to calculate, calculate, Calculate. I'm sure what <laughs> the, the third one those are the third rules. Yeah. Rule number three is look at number one. Yeah, you do your calculations and don't listen to dorks like me when we pontificate. Get your pencil out and let's figure out what it is. All right. A syndication investment was sold in December. Because the schedule one wasn't marked final, some capital was held back. My CPA says passive losses can't be used to offset capital gains. Is he correct? I'm going to disagree with your CPA, and here's why. Normally, when you get a well-prepared K-1, uh, it gives you a list of activities. Mm-hmm. This syndication could own a couple properties, and each of those properties are an activity. Uh, the LLC, the syndication itself, is not the activity, even though it could be an activity because of its ordinary losses and stuff like that, but probably not. So once you sold your activity, which was that piece of real estate, that should have freed up all the losses for that piece of real estate. One hundred percent, with one exception. You got the exception. What's the exception? If you are a real estate professional that has made an aggregation election and you have other properties aggregated in with this, it does not free up that loss. Mm-hmm. But you took the loss already. Yeah, you've been taking the loss all. Along. Unless you already had the loss and then made a real estate professional election, which is why we look at your loss carry forwards before we do that. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, the the the, the final return means nothing. What they care about is is there an liquidating an event, and the the liquidation event that the IRS would look at is <clears throat> did the syndication liquidate its assets? So if it has three properties and it only sold one at a loss, and the other two it's still holding, then that's not substantially all of its assets. If it sells two. I think you're closer to substantially all of its assets, depending on the value. But sells three, it's definitely done a liquidation event for itself. And then whether or not it continues to operate is immaterial. The other option is you sell all your 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 interest in the syndication. Then you would be able to free up that loss. Now, here's something else to think about. Uh, I'm holding this real estate activity in the syndication. I sold it at a gain. Mm-hmm. That capital gain from selling is passive income. Uh, that passive income, passive capital gain can offset any passive losses you have in that uh, activity. Yep. So uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So in other words, 
your CPA is wrong. <laughs> I'm just going to have fun. No, there might be one of the exceptions as to why. So we, like, we don't know what they're looking at, but my guess is if they're thinking that that has to be a final return, there's no, there's no such thing that I've ever seen. From what you've said, we believe your CPA may be incorrect. Yeah. You're so nice. Your CPA may be incorrect. No, your CPA, you know, we're not perfect. I'm not a CPA. I'm just a lawyer. CPAs are your CPA. You're perfect. But most CPAs, we're just human beings. So somebody says, what's the second one? Oh, the second one of the three rules is calculate, John. John is calculate, calculate, calculate. We have to calculate. What's the third one? To calculate? Possibly. I can't remember. I think the third one was looking at the first one. What was the first uh, one? Yeah. Yeah. I forget. All right. I have heard you speak about revocable trusts. Can you tell us the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable complex trust? Well, the spelling, obviously. I know you <laughs> I know you have said that. With an irrevocable, you don't use anything, but wouldn't you, or that you don't own anything, but wouldn't you want to, uh, want, wouldn't you want that so you can't get sued? So let me make sure I understand this. I know you said that with an irrevocable trust, you don't own anything, but wouldn't you want that so you can't get sued? All right. Jeff, what do you think? We so should, we'll break this into two pieces. So, so the, the first part. revocable trust is your typical grantor trust, living trust. You can call it any number of things. It really doesn't mean that much until you die. You can place assets in the revocable trust, but you can also take the assets out. So they're never permanently there until you pass away. They're going to be taxed as a grantor trust. Yes. So revocable trusts, there's actually rules that say, even if it's an irrevocable trust, that has the ability to change and swap out benef uh, beneficiaries and things like that, they're still going to say that's a grantor trust, which means the trust doesn't exist for tax purposes. It's going to go to the grantor. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So my million dollars of stock that I put in my living trust, that's still being taxed to me. Mm -hmm. The dividends. In your, or... in, in your living trust, your revocable trust, land trust. Personal property trust, they're all grantor trust. We could also set up a Nevada Asset Protection Trust or Wyoming or South Dakota or an Alaska or Delaware, whatever you want to call it. You could set it up. And if you have the right to switch and change the beneficiary, it's a grantor trust. It's called an intentionally defective grantor trust. It's still an irrevocable trust, but it is defective for tax purposes, meaning that it's ignored. We do that too a lot when we're just using it for asset protection. So the irrevocable nature of it, if we create an irrevocable, is what's the asset protection tool. For tax purposes, there's other things we look at. Can you switch it? Can you swap things out? Can you take a loan against it that would destroy you, whether it's a complex or a, there's another term called simple trust, which we'll get into in a second. So, so the difference between a revocable trust and an irrevocable complex trust is this. A revocable trust is ignored for tax purposes, and it can be changed. An irrevocable trust means you cannot make changes to it, and it pays its own tax, and you could distribute principal. You're not required to, but you can. A simple or irrevocable simple trust pays its own tax. And by the way, the, the trust tax rates are horrific. You're at 37% when you make $13,000. Yep. Horrific. Simple trust means you distribute all the income on an annual basis, but you can't distribute the principal. So if I create a irrevocable, simple trust, I'm putting money in it, 
I'm putting it into some assets and it's kicking off the income. I have all these tax, these tax cheats that get out there and they start saying, we're going to set up a tax-free trust. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the dividends and we're going to reinvest it. And I don't have to pay tax on it. We're going to take all that. Da, 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 da. And what they're doing is they're looking at a tax code and they don't understand the difference between a simple and a complex trust. And they draft a complex trust that these rules do not apply to. In a simple trust, if let's say you own stock and every year you're paying out the dividend, but your trustee says, you know what? We're getting a one-time distribution, an extraordinary dividend of a bunch of shares. It's kicking me out Warner shares. And I don't want to pay tax on that. I could apply that to the corpus in that particular case. And I don't have to pay tax on it without distributing it. Can't play that game with the complex trust, which what, what these bozos are always trying to do. And then I'm always like having to give bad news to people that know you can't run your business through a trust and never pay tax on it. But he told me, Ken. Yeah, they're completely wrong. But here's what it is. The difference between the revocable trust is it goes down to you from a tax standpoint in an irrevocable complex trust, in a complex trust, if there's any income left that's not distributed to you, it's taxed at the corporate rate. If it's distributed to you, it keeps its nature. So it could be long-term capital gain, short-term capital gain, interest income, mm-hmm. ordinary income. And then an irrevocable, if it's in a, in a good jurisdiction and, it ha- and it's well-drafted, it'll be almost impenetrable from creditors of yours because you don't own it, Right. If you are in control of that puppy, now we broke it and more than likely it's going to be a grantor trust. And then you better have good statutes like Nevada to protect it. Anyway, sorry. I just what, now, one other it. thing I wanted to bring up uh, and a difference between a revocable trust and uh, irrevocable trust is, let's say I put 100,000, my cost in my assets, about 100,000, fair market value of half a million dollars. And I put that into my revocable trust. I die, my beneficiaries get the stepped up basis. They get the $500,000 basis, not the 100,000 basis. Whereas in the irrevocable trust, if I put that same $100,000, my cost, and it's worth $500,000, their basis is 100,000 because it's considered a gift to the trust. The trust basis. The trust basis. But that would only be if it's not an intentionally defective trust. Correct. Right. No, absolutely 100%. That's why you don't play with these things. I don't do me personally, I, I could count on two hands how many complex trusts I've put together. More than likely, it's going to be an intentionally defective because I want to have the ability to, to, to work with it. I do the complex. If it's a, a living trust that's going on, then that's a different animal completely. But we're not trying to get any, you know, at the time it's revocable and then it becomes irrevocable after you pass and everything's already stepped up. Yeah, a complex trust allows you to control what's going out to the beneficiaries or whoever's the trustee. Whereas a simple trust, it makes money, it gets passed on to the beneficiaries and they deal with the taxes. Somebody said, I did a trust because I thought it would take everything out of my name. Not. Um, they can. They can actually be pretty effective, but it might flow onto your return. And then the only question is whether somebody could see that. Somebody says, CPA says you cannot use passive losses to offset capital gains. He did not clarify what type of capital gains wouldn't passive losses offset only passive capital gains, but not portfolio portfolio capital gains and not capital gains from active business. Well, if this is the one we were talking about before, once the activity is sold, the the losses are no longer passive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've, 
I don't really see passive capital gains. I know you mentioned it, but I've, I've never. Well, it, it's anytime you sell passive activity for mm-hmm. a capital gain, it can offset any other passive losses. Any other passive losses that gain. So those passive losses would be used against that passive gain. Yeah. But that's, I always, again, I always think in my brain of it being extinguished and I always think of it. But I guess if you have gain from that, then the other passive losses could offset it. Yeah, when you talk about passive capital gains, most people go, what? Yeah, so it's, it's always whether you have a passive activity and you have capital gain from the passive activity, then you, then you could offset it with other passive income. So it's always looking at, all right, so I have the, again, you're looking at the uh, syndication, I'm a passive investor, it's passive activity, I get rid of that. Then if you have any other passive activities rolling around out there, they could be used to offset it. Sounds like that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not a hundred percent on that. I'll be honest. I got to take. I want to dig into that, but you, you probably have looked at it before. So it'll be good for something that we'll we'll have some fun on. Because I keep thinking about somebody liquidating their syndication and having a big capital gain, and then buying another piece of real estate, depreciating it to offset that capital gain. Could they do that? I'm in, a, in the same year. Yeah, I'm a doctor. I invest in a syndication. That syndication eventually liquidates, and I have all these capital gains. And then I go and I, could I buy another piece of real estate or another syndication and use that depreciation? Let's say they accelerate the depreciation the same year. Could I use that depreciation because it's passive to offset that capital gain from the previous syndication? Yeah. So if it's all done in the same year. If it's all done in the same year, then you could. Okay. That'd be pretty powerful. You can check me on this. I, I'm, I've got to look at it. It's just, it's not, it's not clicking a bell with me, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But if you're looking at it, that's, there's a lot of clients that would actually benefit from that when they're looking at the exits of their investments. That'd be huge for them. Because I know that a lot of times we're looking at other means to lower their income. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's Airbnbs and things like that. So that this might add another tool in the toolbox. I have a nonprofit mentoring business that I often fund with my personal finance. Is there a way that I can write off this money or write this money off on my taxes? Here's how I would do it. I would let the nonprofit pay its own expenses. Let's say they need to go out and buy a computer. I give them the cash, they buy the computer. And every time you give them cash, they should give you a receipt. Now, I I think we're kind of talking about like in-kind contributions where I'm doing something for it. Yeah, that will work. I'm just not real crazy about it because it's harder to document. Mm -hmm. It's harder to prove. What I would say is, I think the easiest way to look at it is anytime you put money and you fund a nonprofit, it's a it's going to be a charitable donation, mm-hmm. so long as you document it. So what I would be doing is documenting, and then the organization is paying that expense. Now, because you donated it, the question is whether you could write that off is whether you exceed your standard deduction. Yep. And so we're going to look at everything from your medical expenses to your state and local taxes to... What else? We got mortgage interest. And then we look at your donation. So if you are above your standard deduction, then you would get to write it off. Otherwise you wouldn't. And again, depending on the type of business, what I might suggest for you, if if you're in the, it wouldn't case is that you mark it as, uh, as an expense that needs to be reimbursed as an employee and reimburse yourself. If ever the nonprofit mentoring business makes money, and it sounds like it's doing something and there's revenue coming in because it's mentoring. If you're just giving away that service, then you may not get that deduction yep. if it's not in excess of your standard deduction. 
So you see that with a lot of people. Hey, you know, I'm making $50,000 a year. I'm donating a lot of my time and I'm giving money to my church or I'm giving money to this organization, but I don't get a benefit for it. And I'm looking at it going, well, your standard deduction right now is $12,950. If you're uh, single, it's close to, you know, it's double that pretty much when you're married, which is like, it's again, 25,000 plus. And unless you're giving away a lot of money, chances are you're not going to get a benefit from it. About 80% of people file the standard deduction right now. So about 80% of the people are getting no benefit for charitable giving. And trust me, the charities know this because they took it in the chin in 2017 when they passed that law. It was much more beneficial for the charities when it was a lot smaller standard deduction. Once they capped that uh, state and local tax deduction. The SALT deduction. Yeah, it, it made it really hard to get to that married filing joint stand, get above that standard deduction. Yep. And so what I would, you know, I, I remember I did a tax Mageddon, I think is what I call that when they passed the, the, the tax act, the uh, tax cut and jobs act in 2017, we did a tax Mageddon. And one of the first things we said is instead of giving in one year, get used to giving in two or get used to giving in three years. In other words, put your money aside, save it, save it, save it. Instead of giving money to your church every week, you know, just say, Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to put the money aside and I'm going to give it, maybe I'll give nothing this calendar year, but on January 1st, I give it a whole bunch. And then by the end of the year, I, I, I give a bunch more. And what I'm doing is I'm shifting that, that, that donation into one year so that I could try to get some benefit out of it. Some people are up for that. Some people aren't. Yep. Or if you have capital assets, you might give a capital asset to the church and say, you know what, can you sell it? Maybe it's stock. You sell it. That way, I don't have to pay the capital gains on it, but I get to write off the fair market value. Maybe that's something you're doing instead of giving cash. So, like, we went through all these different scenarios. Same thing with crypto. Like, when it was going way up, people were like, hey, can I give it to my church? Yeah, you can give it to your church, and your church can hold on to it till it's worthless or sell it. <laughs> Just teasing. I, I, I do love that whole strategy of giving either something large or giving a couple years in advance. One thing I usually suggest, especially if it's a church or something like that, is you let them know, hey, I'm giving you my next three years worth of contributions. Don't expect this every year. Yep. I'm on the board of a company uh, and an investor. No compensation from the business. Would this qualify as active participation if we keep accurate minutes and records of meeting? Active participation uh, is a real estate term. I think you mean material, and that just depends on how much time. And if you're a board member, chances are they're going to treat you as uh, if you're at least doing, well, there's more than likely you'd have to do over 500 hours because I can't imagine that there would be a material participant with as little as 100 unless it's really not an active business. But if it's a traditional business, to be a material participant, you really got to put about 500 hours in it. I think that's it. So there's the YouTube again. If you feel like subscribing and doing a deep dive on any of these things, I have a feeling I'm going to be doing a video at some point on exiting syndications and passive capital losses and things like that. It'll be kind of fun. We don't know everything. If that's one thing that you'll learn from these sessions is that we're curious and we'll dig into it, but nobody knows everything. But you can ask, how does it get treated or how could I get it in a fashion that benefits me from my tax standpoint? So he says, I donated $6,400 to start a nonprofit for my wife. Is that deductible? Yeah, it'd be treated as a charitable donation, John. Whether it's deductible is depending on your 
standard deduction, obviously, and whether it exceeds that amount. So sometimes yes, sometimes no, but you're doing it, you're doing the right thing by donating anyway, no matter what. All right. Go to the uh, YouTube if you have questions and you want to get them answered. Send them to us, Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. And of course, visit us at Anderson Advisors. You go to our website, sign up for, you can see where there's about five different classes that we teach. Some are a little more advanced. Some of them are more basic, but in any, any event, tons of material. Anything, Jeff? Nope. That's all I got. Then I'll say this. Elliot, Troy, Matthew, Dutch, Pio was on, Ian, Christos. Patty, Matthew, all these guys are on there in the background answering your questions. They do a great job. So thanks again, guys. It's a team effort and uh, we enjoy your, your, the fact that you're spending time with us. So hopefully you got something out of it. If nothing else, we will see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 